You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. I'm here. Aaron is here. This show is presented by Window Nation. If you're in the market for windows, call 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com and tell them we told you to call. Uh, Scott Allen from the Washington Post is going to join us on the show today. And Joe Beninati will be with us as the Caps are on fire and Alex Ovechkin is having a great season. And Joe B just flat out uh, is always one of my favorite people to talk to. Oh, that's my phone. Let me turn the ringer off. There we go. Uh, is it anybody important? Nope. Nobody important. Just one of those robocalls, it looks like. Um, Joe B's always one of my favorites. Uh, I think he is a great guest. Um, and that would be put side by side with him being one of the great play by play guys in all of sports. So he will join us in a bit as well. NFL buy or sell today, uh, also. And I'm going to get to my ranking of the Snyder era rock bottoms because I believe this one right now is in consideration. All right. Uh, I'm going to start with this, though. I'll get to Mason Foster also. If you didn't see his tweets yesterday, I think they're real. I don't know if they were photoshopped. I think everybody assumes they were real. I'm going to start with this, and I'm going to make this very clear up front. This is not a report. I'm not reporting anything. Um, This isn't uh, Josh Norman from a few weeks ago or some of the other things over the years. This is me sharing with you something that I've heard now two times over the last three weeks. And I just want to make sure that no one takes this and runs with it and says that the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast is reporting that ba-ba-ba. I'll get to the ba-ba-ba here in a second. Um, The reason I want to share it with you is because I find it so fascinating, and I think you will too, and I think you will find it believable on some level. Robert Griffin III is going to get a chance to start next year in the league. Uh, One of the teams that potentially would be interested in Robert Griffin III as a potential starter on their team, if their starting quarterback, who they traded for last year and then extended uh, contractually, isn't healthy enough, might be the Washington Redskins. Could you imagine? So here's why, and I've heard it twice, all right, from credible people, but I'm not, this is not a report because this was conversation about the interest level from not only the Redskins potentially, but from someone else. And it's not Cooley. All right, let me just be clear on that because you, oh, Cooley told you that. I never, ever share things that Cooley has told me about the organization unless he says, hey, let's talk about this. Or, yeah, go ahead, which is rarely go ahead on my own. Um, But he has apparently been a model citizen in Baltimore. It's why would it be impossible to believe, and I've always thought this as a possibility, that Robert Griffin III, who was completely and utterly self-absorbed, empowered by the owner here in his rookie season and, and beyond, um, why what why wouldn't it be possible that he would at some point in his life later, as he matured personally and professionally, he's 28 years old right now. Why isn't it possible that he learned from his mistakes and that he grew and that he may even cringe when he thinks about some of the things that happened here in 2000, 
12, 13, 14. Um, the social media, you know, crusade that he was on, um, that was incredibly, um, self, uh, indulgent and, 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 and clueless really to, for, for a lot of it and rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but there is still, we know this, there is still a contingent out there of Redskins fans who feel like Robert Griffin, the third was completely screwed over when he was here. I think that's a fascinating take if you really followed this story day in and day out. Um, but uh, he ha- he came in at the end of the uh, game on Sunday against Kansas City because Lamar Jackson got knocked out of those final two plays. He actually, on the 4th and 22, put a ball right on uh, Willie Sneed's hands. It could have been interference. It was a good throw. Um, and in the game against Atlanta... Two weeks ago, when Lamar Jackson got knocked out of that particular game, um, Griffin came in and led a long scoring drive, a 13-play, 55-yard, actually, that's not the one, a 14-play, 60-yard drive, where he completed two of four passes, and it led to a field goal, a huge field goal in the second half in a 13-10 game. Everything we have heard about Griffin in Baltimore has been positive. Uh, it's been positive. Now, we also know that teammates aren't going to throw uh, you know, a quarterback under the bus that's third string. What's, what's the point of that? And we also know that for the most part, although eventually uh, the floodgates opened on that, but early on, the Redskins, um, his teammates that couldn't stand him, um, didn't want to throw him under the bus publicly because they knew the owner. Uh, uh, loved him, and they knew what the owner's feelings were about him. Um, but he's 28. He's always had a gun for an arm. The league is moving more now, more towards quarterbacks that are dual threat. You know, all for all of those, and I say this all the time. It was just laughable for the, you know, for the uh, Greg Cosells and Pete Prisco's and all these different people that had no idea what they were watching in 2012 and thought it was gimmicky. And, and then even in 2014 and 15, you know, Phil Sims would sit there and watch a zone read play and call it a draw. Like he, and I always attributed that to the fact that people didn't really watch college football much, which I think was a big part of it. Um, but it's more than it's ever been. I mean, all of the quarterbacks, you know, just just look at Mariota all of a sudden having a resurgence to his career. Deshaun Watson, Baker Mayfield, um, you know, they, they're running a lot of stuff for him. Um, we've seen it over and over again. Prescott involved in the run game. Trubisky is involved in the run game. Um, obviously, Cam, uh, you know, and Russell Wilson. You know, Robert Griffin III, if he comes out of Baltimore, all right, if Baltimore says, hey, this dude grew up, he's matured. These things that we heard about him in Washington, him in Cleveland and other places, not true. Um, He's going to get a look as a starter next year. And the owner of the Washington Redskins has an affection for Robert Griffin III that has never waned, has never wavered. And they may need a quarterback next year. And that quarterback could be Robert Griffin III under a very team-friendly deal 
where he would potentially have a chance to start. Again, I want to be clear on this. Things I've heard, I'm not reporting. All right. Uh, we'll get to Scott Allen here shortly. We'll get to Joe Beninati. What do you have for me, Aaron? Oh, what do you want to ask? Well, two things. Uh, first, about Robert Griffin the third, putting him back into that situation where the owner still loves him. Do you think that would bring out the old traits, or would he still be the new RG three under those circumstances? Uh, it do you would, think it, it would depend on who the coach was and what the coach demanded and. Let me just say this. The, the one part, and I didn't mention this, the disconnect for all of you would be, well, Jay Gruden doesn't like him, and he doesn't want him. And that's true. So, obviously, this is um, contingent on Jay Gruden not being here next year and there being a new coach. And perhaps that new coach would be a coach that would want to work with Robert Griffin III and that style of quarterback. Uh you know, that would be a, that would be a redo, wouldn't it? I mean, he brought Jay Gruden in to make Robert Griffin the third work. Uh, anyway, you know what he's done in Baltimore, according to all accounts, is account for himself in a very positive way, and he has a gun for an arm. Always has had a gun for an arm. His biggest issues, his biggest flaws, fundamentals in the pocket, reading defenses. Um, not wanting to be a dual-threat quarterback. And then, obviously, all of the stuff that went on here in Washington that, again, and I've said this many times over, he was 22 years old, and the owner basically gave him power that, that superseded the coach's power. You can't do that. I mean, the irony of it is, is that Robert Griffin III, if Snyder had really wanted what was best for RG3 in 2013, he would have said, you listen to your coach. Don't call me again. Don't approach me again unless it's for a personal thing because we're friends and I'll help you with anything personally. But when it comes to a professional matter, Mike is the guy you go to. And he should have given Mike the power to coach him in the way that Mike had coached quarterbacks before. Because having Mike and Kyle as your quarterback's coach, essentially, would have benefited Robert Griffin III in the long run. That's the irony of it, is that somehow Snyder thought he was doing the right thing by Griffin when, in fact, he was hurting him significantly. Okay, I'm going to get to uh, a quick ranking of some of the rock bottoms of the Snyder era that I put together. But first, this Mason Foster uh, thing uh, where he was communicating Aaron with a fan, right? Yeah, he was. <laughs> DMing. Uh, yeah, it seemed like it was uh, last week based on the time stamps and, and the fan decided to release oh, it Oh, this, this was week. from last week? Oh, it, and the fan released it. Yes. To, ah, so it was done with the expectation of some level of privacy. Yes, th this was a DM. I can't tell. It looks like it was on Instagram, but uh, yeah, it was released yesterday. Okay. I, I think this got blown up then perhaps a little bit inaccurately, don't you think? I mean, he still said what he said, and even if he was, you know, expectation of privacy, like, it's social media. Like, we've seen screenshots right, let, come let, out before. So let me, let, let me read you the screenshot that has been substantiated as it is Mason Foster. Yes, it, it does okay. seem like he has admitted it. Well, the one-on-one the, the -on -one nature of this versus uh, a push, a social media push out to anybody that follows him makes it different for me. 
But a fan, I guess, contacted Mason Foster and said, keep your head up. We definitely have to get better, but we have to move on and get ready for the next game. Never be satisfied like most, like most people. Aim for greatness. Mason Foster, quote, fuck this team and this fan base. The fan then responds with, uh, it's been tough for some time and it sucks ass, but we got to keep fighting, bro. We're in hell right now, point blank. Mason Foster's response, yeah, and I'm not fucking with it or being a scapegoat to make fans feel better about all these big money people who ain't playing or getting dogged out. (laughs) Oh, boy. The dysfunction of this franchise never ceases to amaze. This coming from the defensive captain. The defensive captain. Good point. Forgot about that. Yeah. Forgot about that old number. I don't know. Fifty four is is the team captain. I, I think this could make for a uh, good shirt. What do you think? Oh man, it's unraveling. I I, I had a, I've had some people here recently reach out to me and say, "Dude, they've got three games left. They can still make the postseason. Why are you raining down on them?" Well, because it feels to me. I mean, I can only tell you what it feels like to me. This is this is what it feels like to me. It feels like it has fallen apart, that it's a new rock bottom uh, that we're in right now, and that they're not going to win another game. I don't think they're going to win another game. They might win one. They're not going to win two. I would be very, very surprised. But I would also, let me just be very clear about this. Come Sunday at 1 o'clock, I'm going to be rooting like hell for Josh Johnson to go 25 of 32 for 339, three touchdowns, and a 38-21 win at Jacksonville that all of a sudden completely uh, resuscitates the season. Because then you're thinking, well, if he can do that against Jacksonville's defense, why not Tennessee's defense? Why not uh, uh, at home against the Eagles to get into the playoffs? I will be rooting for that, but I'm also where I am right now is this feels like a major rock bottom, a major rock bottom. It just feels that way. It just feels, why wouldn't it? They were down 40 to nothing. Oh, it's just one game. No, it's not just one game. It was their fourth loss in a row. It was the ugliest loss. They lost another key player that a fourth string quarterback would tend to rely on, Jordan Reed. This season's over. So here's what I did. I was thinking about whether or not this is the worst ever where we are right now. And I've mentioned television ratings recently and attendance recently. And there are four rock bottom periods, all right, moments during the Snyder era. Uh, Actually, that's not true. There are seven in total. But I ranked the top three and then I gave out four honorable mentions, all right? To me right now, the number one Snyder era rock bottom is where we are now, December 2018. This is the lowest of the many recent lows in franchise history. Some might argue that there have been worse, and that's fine. And some might say, as I just mentioned, hey, they're 6-7. and seven. They're not 3-10. and ten. They're mathematically alive for a playoff spot. And, and yes, the roster, too, has some promising young talent on defense for the first time in forever. But let's not forget that it's been the defense that has caved here over the last month. And they haven't suffered nearly the injuries. They've had a normal number of injuries 
defensively. The franchise is one of its is on one of its worst off the field clown runs of the Snyder era. I don't know that you can really debate that. Since Bruce Allen arrived in 2010, we've been witness to the McNabb trade, the RG3 trade, the salary cap penalty, which I do not blame the Redskins for. Uh, the RG3 owner entitlement, as we t- talked about earlier, and the subsequent fallout, uh, which included the Shanahan leak fest. All right, you throw in the McLuhan mess, the Cousins contract saga, Reuben Foster, and the gutless pinning of Reuben Foster on Doug Williams. The list just goes on and on and on. Winning off the field. The Gruden contract extension looks dumb now. The suing of small newspapers that nobody's ever heard of. The stadium sign ban. Remember that from a few years ago? The constant bungling of defensive coordinator hires. Look, I've heard much more and much of it's worse, all right? But it's unsubstantiated, so I'll pass on sharing that stuff for now. I think part of the stuff that I hear that is unsubstantiated that I don't share and that some in the media that know this don't share is perhaps sometimes why the media ends up being even more angry and more upset because there's a lot that's been there's a lot that's even worse. The record has been mediocre over the last few years. Not awful, mediocre. So there's that, I guess, to sort of hang on to. J.P. Finley the other day with us called it a period of sustained mediocrity. Uh, but the recent so-so record improvement, if you want to call that, hasn't helped quell uh, what I believe to be an accelerated erosion of the fan base. There's tangible proof that the fan base is checking out at a faster pace than ever. The home opener, beautiful day, following a season opening win in Arizona with Adrian Peterson and Alex Smith on the team who was billed as the best quarterback the franchise has had in years. All right, that should have resulted and would have resulted in previous years in a sold-out house. It was barely half-filled. A late-season Monday night game in Philadelphia, all right, a week ago uh, Monday, uh, with a share of first place on the line, would have done a 30-plus local television rating just two or three years ago. It did a 21.6. Nobody wants tickets. Fewer and fewer are watching. And the go-to move of selling hope, and that's always been the go-to move in the past, it seems like for the first time it's futile. Like, there's no selling of hope. And part of that is because the constant overselling and under-delivering, which is basically, to me, the the MO of this franchise, overselling, under-delivering, it's run its course. The loss to the Giants was an execution, and it played out in front of a small gathering of people live and a small gathering of people watching on television. All right, the starting quarterback is unhealthy and his future is in doubt. What's not in doubt is his hefty salary cap hit that exists here over the next few years. He's got to be on the roster because of that questionable contract extension. And it's going to be costly, really costly. The coaching staff is uninspiring. And really, let's be fair here. It's appeared to be over its head. It's been in over its head for a while now as it relates to things like preparation, in-game strategy, player development. Where do you go for a glimmer of hope? Where do you go? 
There's no recently drafted quarterback of the future. You know, there's no young rookie that was picked last year that you can pin your hopes on. The salary cap situation isn't great. There's no obvious replacement for Bruce Allen or Jay Gruden, in part because the franchise has become undesirable to work for. Right now, right now is rock bottom. Uh, it's the rock bottom of all rock bottoms. I guess the difference is they actually could miraculously change that narrative in the next three weeks. But what are the odds of that? I don't, I, I don't really, I, most of you don't believe that they're about to make a run. Um, witness the television rating of a 14 on Sunday. The Dallas-Philadelphia game later that day did a 19.8 locally. Other NFL games are outrating Redskins games in the Redskins home market. So it's not just a case of people aren't watching football. They are watching football. Just other football more than Redskins football. Let that sink in for a moment. They're watching other games on Sunday afternoons more than they're watching the Redskins game. You can put that one right next to no sellouts, none, not one sold out FedEx stadium the entire season. Right there, Dan, right there. Many fewer are attending, many fewer are watching. I think they're likely going to lose out maybe one more win but that conversation just ignores the big picture, which can be summed up this way. Few, very few even care right now and will barely even watch what happens over these final three games. I just hope those of you that aren't watching these final three games still listen to the podcast. <laughs> that's what I hope. Uh, that's number one. Right now is the number one rock bottom moment of all of the Snyder-era rock bottoms. Number two is December 2009. Ten years after he purchased the team, the Redskins had an incompetent GM, an unqualified head coach, a subpar quarterback, Jason Campbell, a bad salary cap situation, and for the first time, evidence of an apathetic fan base started to make its presence felt. The mid-October 2009 14-6 loss at home to Kansas City in front of a sparse crowd to start that left at halftime was the first indication that the fan base could, could bail on this. The hiring of Sherm Lewis, a.k.a. the bingo caller, uh, to consult and call plays combined with the swinging gate game, 45-12, the home Monday night loss to the Giants felt in the moment like the most hopeless point in the Snyder era. There was no apparent path to better. They were on their way to 4-12, and and it seemed in the moment to be totally unfixable. Totally unfixable. December 2013's number three on my list. That was another rock bottom. Uh, the star effing owner empowered the young self-absorbed quarterback and all hell broke loose. That rock bottom was a true beauty. I mean, it was a beauty. The owner got involved here in a way that was super destructive to the organization. And as I mentioned earlier, earlier, a young talented player who had flaws. The best thing, as I mentioned earlier, again, the best thing for Griffin would have been to let one of the best quarterback development coaches of all time work with him, Mike Shanahan, 
Kyle Shanahan, they could have continued to develop what was a young, raw talent in Griffin, but the owner didn't agree with the way he was being played. And the RG3 crowd's bellyaching about him being a running quarterback was endorsed by the owner. The 2012 game at Cleveland was really the beginning of the end. Griffin wanted to play despite being injured and not having practiced all week. The owner wanted him to play too. He did. Dan wanted him to play. And both made their opinions uh, very clear to Mike Shanahan during pregame warm-ups. And the coach said, no, you didn't practice, you're hurt, you're not playing. And then the backup quarterback threw for over 300 without running the zone read once. Griffin's relationship with his head coach would never be the same. His relationship with the owner, though, was airtight. The 2013 season, all right, the 2013 season was submarined because of the nature of those relationships from the jump. And it all came to a head before and during a 45-10 loss on a snowy December day at FedEx Field against the Kansas City Chiefs. Leaks led to reports before the game indicating that Shanahan wanted to leave a year earlier. Remember those? Those were Shanahan leaks. The game itself was a blowout in front of just a few brave souls. The shots of a near-empty stadium are indelible. You see that shot all the time. The coach was out. Bruce became a solo top-day-to-day dog. He became the day-to-day number one, number one, once Mike was gone. And RG3 started a self-promotional social media crusade that made every mature adult cringe, except for the owner and team president. That was number three. Those are my top three. Now, uh, 2009 and 2013. The honorable mentions, uh, five and 11, not too good. Spurrier, 2003. Uh, felt like rock bottom, but he fixed that quickly with the hiring of Joe Gibbs, didn't he? Uh, December 2014 felt really, really bad when Gruden came in, promised the owner he could develop Griffin as a dropback passer, but realized it wasn't possible. That led to a 4-12 and disaster of a season. Uh, that felt awful uh, late December 2014. And those are the honorable mentions. I mean, some of you will say January uh, 2017 when they lost to the Giants to get into the playoffs that that felt like rock bottom. Not in the same way. And clearly when Gibbs retired, um, you know, a month and a half after Sean had passed, that didn't feel great either. But that's it. That's my list. Let me tell you about Window Nation real quickly. Uh, Harley, Aaron, Eric, they love the podcast. If you've been thinking about new windows, I promise you as someone who has had Window Nation installed in my home twice, windows installed by Window Nation in my home twice over the last decade, you won't go wrong by giving them a call. It's Window Nation's triple zero sale. Zero down payment, zero payments, and zero interest until 2020. But that's not all. Window Nation's triple zero sale is a triple deal. You also get $200 off every window, any size, any style. And with a whole house of windows, Window Nation will will pay your heating bill. If you order a whole house of windows, they'll pay your heating bill until the new windows are installed. You'll save hundreds, maybe thousands. Window Nation windows give the greatest gift in inviting, warm, cozy, 
comfortable home. Visit windownation.com today for the triple zero sale, zero down payment, zero payments, and zero interest for 12 months. And $200 off each window, no minimum purchase required. Window Nation will pay your heating bill until the new windows are installed. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or shop windownation.com and tell them I told you to call. All right, let's bring in Scott Allen uh, from the Washington Post. Um, Scott uh, does a great job with the bog, uh, and um, he ranked the worst losses of the Jay Gruden era Yes, uh, uh, the, the other day um, on the bog. And I, I was going to tell you um, that – I just finished going through it. It sort of gave me the idea to rank rock bottoms in the Snyder era because there yeah. have been multiple rock bottoms. You know, the moment in in which a fan and I am one feels like there's no hope. And we've had several of those during the Snyder era. But I actually before we get to your list of Jay Gruden, uh, the, the law, the worst five losses, I really feel like for a lot of reasons, Scott, um, you know, that especially the eroding fan base uh, indicators, television ratings, attendance, etc. I really right. feel like this is the rock bottom, even though mathematically they could make a run to the postseason. What do you think? Yeah, th- that's the crazy thing. I mean, yesterday in between writing a post where I was kind of rounding up Um, all this anger from former Redskins players like Clinton Portis and Santana Moss about Sunday's effort, I find myself clicking over to 538's NFL playoff predictions and, you know, punching (laughs) in win, win, loss, what if they win and the Eagles lose and the Panthers lose and seeing the odds go up and up and up if they're somehow able to to win at Jacksonville and then Tennessee. I mean, I don't see, I don't see it happening. Um, this certainly could be up there in terms of lowest of the low. I mean, we could rank the rock bottoms with like pictures of Alex Smith dragging the boulder along the the bottom of the ocean like he does in his freak workouts in the off season. This is right up there, I think, with with 2009, 2013. You know what? Also, it, 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 you have tangible indicators, right? The television ratings are. Probably, you know, an estimated 50% lower than where they would have been three years ago for a game against the Eagles on a Monday night in December for first place. We've got the attendance issues. They won't sell out one game this year officially. Um, and you know, it's, it's the running clown show of the, of the Bruce Allen era, which has also accelerated, you know, in recent years with, you know, just last week or two weeks ago now, the Reuben Foster signing, the contract, uh, saga with Kirk, the, the McLuhan mess, um, you know, all of that stuff, it seems to be coming you know, more furiously and even faster than before, which is why I feel like, and I can only speak to this as a fan, but I can also cite what, how fans are reacting via sort of the tangible measurements that we just discussed. But I I just don't see 2009, the end of the Zorn era or the end of the Shanahan era, which got really ugly in December of 2013. I think that they are runner ups to this. I think you could be right. I mean, especially you mentioned the TV ratings. I think in 2013, which was that was the last year of the Shanahan era, yeah, they averaged a 26.6 um, rating throughout the season um, that year. 
And, you know, we looked at the numbers. The numbers came out from the this past Sunday's Giants game. What, 14, 14.8? It was less than 15. And, you know, last year, for some context, that Chargers game on the road the same week, they got blown out. That was, what, 11.8? Right. And, and I remember reading at the time, I mean, Dan Steinberg wrote it up, that that seems like we don't have the numbers from every single game, but that certainly seemed like the low point, um, certainly of the Snyder era. And looking ahead to these next two weeks, I think we've got to be going lower. I mean, Sunday had to have been buoyed by some of the Giants fans in this area, but who's who's paying attention to the Jags and Titans? I think it could get really, really ugly um, if you're looking for indicators in terms of TV ratings in these next two weeks. I think that's right. Um, you know, the 11 that they did against the Chargers last year came in a meaningless game for the Redskins. They were completely out of it. The, the Philadelphia game and even the Giant game on Sunday – you know, technically yeah. they were still very much alive, as they will be True. going into the game Sunday. But you make a good point with all of the New Yorkers that live here. Uh, that 14 uh, may go super low on Sunday. And I would think that the giant number also had something to do with them getting completely blown out, 40 to nothing. Yeah. Although that Easy actually, away. although I have to tell you that on some level, I bet for some people that made it more interesting to watch. <laughs> Are we watching history here? Yeah. Because it was so bad. Um, we're talking to Scott Allen from the Washington Post. All right, uh, let's go through your your <laughs> list um, because you didn't put Sunday as the number one worst loss of the Jay Gruden era, and there were plenty. There have been plenty of them uh, to choose from. Tell everybody what your number one was. Number one for me is, I think, will forever be the final game of the the twenty six season. The the win and in against the Giants at home. You're playing a Giants team. Um, that had already clinched its spot in the postseason. Not only that, it had its seating was already determined. There was nothing to gain for the Giants um, with a win. Eli Manning started, but they rested a bunch of other starters. Um, and, of course, the Redskins, they weren't starting their third-string quarterback, a, a Mark Sanchez or, or a Josh Johnson. It was Kirk Cousins, franchise QB. All they needed was a win at home to essentially – clinch a spot in the in the postseason for a second straight year and two picks by Kirk uh, a 19 to 10 loss and like that it was a the start of a brutal offseason that was that was certainly the worst big game loss you know yeah. and, and it felt it was so deflating because of everything you just described and you know, over the years now, I mean, or at least a couple of years, it's always been pinned on Kirk. And, you know, I'm a Kirk defender. The defense was horrible that day. Jay Gruden's team right. was utterly unprepared. But Kirk right. didn't. Kirk played poorly, too, and didn't overcome uh, any of that. Um, but it's also, it, it, it's one of those indications of, of why I, I, or it's one of those examples why I think Jay Gruden can't come back. You know, it's not like these injuries are the only reason for the mediocre record his team hasn't been well coached for you know at least the slight majority of games that he's coached in um you had Giants 40 Redskins 16 from Sunday number two um behind uh the the deflating uh playoff knocked out uh game against the Giants what were your three four and five uh number three you have it in front of you there. Yeah, I do. It's okay because you're, you're like me. Yeah, unless it's in front I think of you, they you all forgot. kind of run together. All right, let got... me tell you, 
real quick, you know, when I was talking about the idea for this story, I thought about kind of re-upping worst losses of the Snyder era, because that's something I had done in 2014 um, after the after the Bucks game, 27-7. Maybe I think that's on the list. I forget if it's three. Yeah, but, but, but Bucks uh, 27, Redskins 7 at the end of November – um, and uh, mid mid November 2014 is yeah. three. The Chargers mm-hmm. loss last year was four, and you had the Saints 34-31 comeback from 15 down over the final few minutes of the game to uh, beat the Skins. Right. And for all intents and purposes, end the competitive portion of last year as number right. five. Yeah. So really, all sorts of different types of situations and games on that list, and I try to take into account, you know. Obviously, not all of them were big games with with playoff stakes. Certainly, number three, that Bucks game, that was the Redskins were already out of it. That's Jay Gruden's first year. Um, what made that one so memorable and so awful um, to me was that I think the Redskins were something like four and, and seven. They were coming off a bye. Um, RG three was starting, and you've got the Bucks coming to town. The Bucks were one and eight, I think. Yeah. Um, like 30th in, in points allowed, 29th in, in total offense. And the Redskins just got run off the field. That's Mike Evans' rookie year. Um, he put up 200 yards um, receiving 27 to seven final. I think uh, Griffin's first pass was, was intercepted. It was a miserable, cold, drizzly day. Dan Steinberg wrote a great piece from the stands that day where people are chanting by the end, we want Colt, we want Colt. Booze just raining down. That was that was a low point um, in the Snyder era and certainly the Gruden era, obviously. It was a terrible day. It was almost like Jay sticking it to Dan saying, look, he can't play the other guys better. We've got to play the other guy. Um, that <laughs> right. And his last game had beaten Dallas on a Monday night, if I recall. But um, so as we're sitting here talking, um, I know that there are people listening that are saying, all right, enough, guys, enough with the Redskins yeah. bashing. Um, how do you react to that? I certainly hear it. I mean, after this latest list came out, um, I got some comments that were essentially, well, what did you expect with – they've lost their their two starting quarterbacks. You've got a guy in Mark Sanchez who hasn't started in four years. He's replaced by a guy who hadn't thrown a pass in a regular season game in five years. Well, honestly, I didn't expect them to win. My pushback is – they were underdogs for a reason. I thought it was going to take a huge effort by the defense to to win that game and keep their fading playoff hopes alive. But you know what? What we saw in in the second quarter, I, I don't care. I expected the offense to struggle, but that second quarter from the defense, even with the tough spot that the offense put them in, it was like I think in one story I described it as it was like the opposite of the second quarter of Super Bowl 22 when Doug Williams went off. I mean, like now Redskins fans kind of know how the Broncos must have felt when Doug Williams put 35 points on them because that was maybe the ugliest. I think people were saying maybe that's the ugliest half in Redskins history, certainly the ugliest quarter. Yeah, I mean, look, right now if we were – 
I, when when I hear that, I, I was curious because I, I was reading some of the comments of your story. Um, oh, uh, never do uh, that, Kevin. Yeah, well, no, no. <laughs> I, I read your comments. I don't read mine ever. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I I never care about that because your instincts are right, and I think mine are too. And the numbers back it up. Um, few, fewer and fewer are caring because of all of the shenanigans and, and the, and the losing, um, there are diehards and they go to harvest fest every year and they attend the draft day party and pay, you know, for $12 beers to, to, to watch Larry Michael down on the field announce the new draft choice. Um, but, but that is a significant, significant minority of the fan base and, uh, I know this, Scott. There are people in that building out there that have always looked at that part of the fan base and said, that's our fan base. No, it isn't. Yeah. It's not. Um, it is a diehard, uh, you know, yeah. uh, minority, and God bless them. I'm not being critical of them. Um, but they're never going to think that the Redskins do anything wrong. What do you think happens next? Assuming, look, they're a seven-point underdog this week. If they yeah. play poorly this week, they, they, they could be a double-digit underdog to Tennessee the following week, and then they'll be an underdog at home, even if Philly has nothing to play for in the season finale. So let's just assume that they don't make the postseason. I think sure. that's fair uh, to yep. assume. What do you think happens after the season ends? Oh, I think you're right that nothing's going to – I don't think anything's going to happen – until after the season ends. And I think at that point, um, if I were to bet right now, I would think that Bruce Allen goes or is reassigned. I mean, if you, if Snyder wants to keep him as the guy who negotiates the next stadium deal and strips him of all other responsibilities, fine. And if he's going to bring somebody else in to, to assume those other roles, um, I think barring – a performance or two like we saw on Sunday. Right now, my feeling is that Jay Gruden is back, and and I don't necessarily think that's the that's the right decision. I know that I know that you have been just listening to your podcast, you saying that Jay and Bruce have got to go. Um, right now, I guess I think it would be one or the other, and I think I would lean toward it it, it being Bruce. Thank you for doing this. Uh, Reed Scott, most of you do in the post. Um, he's continuing the long-standing tradition of the bog, uh, and uh, you're doing a great job. Appreciate uh, you coming on, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, Kevin. All right, let's bring in Joe Beninati, uh, the voice of the Washington Capitals on NBC Sports Washington, one of my favorite guests and one of my favorite play-by-play people. And I wanted to have you on today because – you know, last night I was actually uh, on a long drive up to State College to pick up my son who just finished his last final at Penn State and bring him back. And, and I was on satellite switching around and, and I, I switched to the Caps game and you know how post the score and it's like it's 3 nothing in the first period. I'm like, they are, they're sizzling right now. And, and, and Ovechkin ends up with the hat trick last night. They beat Detroit 6-2. to two. They shut out Columbus over the weekend. Four to nothing. Um, right now, they're they're in first, Joe, in the Metropolitan, uh, and Tampa's got a, a better record overall, and I think maybe Toronto does as well. But we talked about this during the first week or ten days of the season that this team, this Capitals team, might be better than the Stanley Cup winning team. Are we seeing evidence of that right now? 
bits and pieces, Kevin. There are a lot of good things going on right now. And I just I go to the championship pedigree more than anything from a mental standpoint. The ability, uh, what they achieved last spring helped them from time to time throughout different points in a hockey game. But I, it, it's not a physical thing. It's more of a mental thing, the ability to sit there and go, we've overcome adversity in the past on the most critical, at the most critical moment. Why can't we do it now? So if there is a bump in the road early in a game or late in a game, they have the wherewithal, the mental capacity to just park it and overcome it. And from a talent standpoint, I don't really think we've seen the entire lineup all together, whether it be due to suspension or injury or what have you, and yet still they have at any moment a team that can take a game uh, by the throat. And they did that last night uh, against Detroit, uh, a a Detroit team that played against L.A. the night before. And and we've seen Caps teams in the past lollygag it around when they should have an advantage like that. That wasn't the case last night. They took that game in the first period and said, there will be no chance for you, Detroit. And they played extremely well. I've seen instances of it. Uh, in this first quarter plus of the season, that showdown in Columbus that was supposed to be uh, you know, hotly contested for the top of the Metro was a no contest. Uh, when I look at things, you mentioned two teams that are out there in the East. Uh, Tampa Bay is terrific. So is Toronto. But Tampa Bay is the one that, um, to me, is the one that means business. But that's for a long time from now. Let's not get into that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, they've got 49 points. They're 24 wins, seven losses, and, and one overtime loss. Kevin, they're, they're awesome. Well, they're they, really deep. And they're doing it without their best goalie. I mean, it's a very, very good team. I can't wait to see them match up with Washington, both in the regular season and down the road. Well, they've, they've scored 130 goals on the year. They're easily the most explosive team uh, offensively in the league. I, I think that's 17 more than whoever's number two. Uh, I thought I read that this morning. But I, I wanted to ask you about the Caps and how explosive they can be offensively and how lethal they can be offensively. Remember there was this thought in 2010, 2011 that, um, you know, certainly 2009, 2010, that this was one of the the best offensive teams um, that they had ever assembled. What about this one? Where does this one rank? Yeah, this is better than the the high-flying Gabby team. It really is from an offensive standpoint. Um, And that's been a product coming and developing. Uh, I think it's directly attributable to um, number 92, uh, when Yevgeny Kuznetsov plays at the level that he can, you have a spectacular one-two punch down the middle with Backstrom's playmaking ability and with Kuznetsov's. And we saw Kuznetsov lead the Stanley Cup playoff tournament last year in points. When he's at that level, Washington can compete with anyone. And that gives you a little bit of that Crosby-Malkin-type dynamic, right. Backstrom-Kuznetsov-type dynamic. And, and then you add in what Lars Eller does from a two-way standpoint, and such so many of the great teams are built well down the middle. The Caps are extremely strong down the middle. And, and Kuznetsov, Kevin, hasn't even been his best in the last week to ten days. And all of a sudden, oh, by the way, he's got a six-game point streak, and I'm not necessarily sure he's playing nearly as well as he did to start the season. This team has a lot of offensive gifts, and all of a sudden now you're getting fourth-line production from, from Yashkin and Dowd and Boyd. Uh, it, it makes them incredibly tough to stop. I want to say in the last dozen games they're averaging close to four goals a game, and, and that's really solid. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the fourth time this year they've scored six or more. 
uh, in a game. And part of that, obviously, is now 33-year-old Alex Ovechkin, who had a hat trick last night, uh, the 21st uh, hat trick of his career. Um, He's got 25 goals now on the season. Uh, Rank his play right now to where it's been at other really productive portions of his career. Yeah, this is the amazing thing about uh, about number eight. Um, he's what got twenty five goals in thirty games, which I mean, I start shaking my head at that at any age, even when he was electric when he was in his early twenties. the The goals are coming in different ways, Kevin. I, I think that's a maturity and an evolution in Alex's game. Uh, again, when he was when he was fresh from being the number one overall pick. Um, he was going end to end. I mean, pick your pick your favorite fastest NBA point guard. That was Alex Ovechkin, and he could take it all the way to the rim and score. That's what he was doing when he was a baby. Things are different now. The explosiveness isn't the same. You do see it from time to time, but there are he's scoring goals in different ways: rebounds, deflections, forechecking, turnovers. Uh, last night was a little bit of good fortune on a couple of occasions. One so much that he was he was laughing out loud that the shot that he originally took was really going 10 feet wide and had no business going in. But when you're hot, you're hot. I, I just, from an overall type game, I can understand why our analysts, Alan May, Brent Johnson, Craig Lachlan, um, all of our analysts are saying he's playing the best hockey of his life. And I, I think that's all the way around, cover to cover, because he is a bit more conscientious on defense. He's definitely working harder on the defensive end and offensively, you know, his playmaking gifts, we showed a, we showed a passing sequence, uh, a, a montage of, of terrific assists from, from Alex Ovechkin that would make Nicholas Backstrom blush. So if he's got that kind of skill and he's always had it, he's been a tremendous offensive player, but everybody goes to goals, 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 his playmaking, his feeding ability in the last couple of weeks has been off the charts. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's on pace uh, to, to a, I think he's on pace to eclipse the 2000, 2007 2008 season. Somebody told me 68. 68. Yeah, so and and what right and that well, was 65. That was 65, yeah. right, Joe? 65 and 08. Yeah. yeah, 08 was just great for number 8 and uh, again, I I think back to those days. I can't believe they're as long ago as they <laughs> as they are. Uh, yeah, I can't I believe that's 10 years ago, but he, he's such at that time, Kevin, he's just glowing hot. I mean, you can see how extraordinarily powerful and fast he is. His game's changed, and I think his game has probably changed even for the better. He's including more of his teammates in the offensive attack, and still he always possesses the ultimate weapon, which is I think it's got to be the best hockey shot on earth. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about Todd Reardon. Um, Have they missed any step from the bench, and is it possible that they're better in that particular spot than they were a year ago? That's a. I don't think they've missed any steps from 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 Barry's championship uh, medal. Um, the thing that I always point to with regard to Todd, in respect with respect to Barry, maybe Kevin would be, maybe that the door is open a little bit more for communication uh, than it might have been. Um, Todd is a terrific teacher. I think that's first and foremost what he gained his reputation for was being able to take, let's say, a, a young Matt Niskanen in Pittsburgh and develop his game. Maybe take a younger John Carlson when he first came to Washington under Barry 
and really develop his game into what many of us think could be a, a Norris Trophy winning type season for John. You know, Todd's had a terrific hand in that development. He's a great teacher. He's the kind of person who's going to grab you and say, hey, Kevin, come into the office. Let me show you something on video. Let's go out on the ice and work it. And you, you see that interaction. You see that communication. In that way, maybe they're better, maybe a smidge better. Not that Barry didn't do that, but Todd does it really, really well. And all of the staff is uh, getting involved. One thing that I will say, uh, Braden Holpe told me this, with regard to Barry Trotz, he thought Barry was um, a brilliant CEO-type head coach. He was great at delegating. He let his coordinators, if you will, coordinate. You know, And that's something I think that Todd is focused upon as well. All right, last thing, because we, we've touched on it, but I want to get your thoughts. We're not even halfway through the season at this point. The Capitals uh, have played 30, so they're 11 short of the halfway mark. But what's going on in the other division of the Eastern Conference right now is interesting because you, you start to project forward and you see a potential matchup with Tampa uh, in the postseason, and we saw one last year. Um, and even you know a Toronto team who two years ago everybody was said you know everybody's talking about their youth and saying that this was the team of the future. Um, both of those teams have been terrific so far. A uh, long way uh, until April, um, but how do they match up right now with the two best in the other division or the two other really good teams in the Eastern Conference? I'm salivating just thinking about it. I really am, because the hockey fan is going to be treated, should we get that kind of matchup in the spring? It will be unbelievable, because um, both Tampa and Toronto have offensive weapons one through nine almost, and maybe in Tampa's case even deeper, uh, that set people back. And Washington won a Stanley Cup championship last spring because of its commitment to defense. And you were able to short-circuit a Pittsburgh team and a Tampa team, for that matter, that were terrifically gifted on offense. That would have to come to the forefront again. And I think that's always going to be in the back of Washington's mind that, yeah, we don't want to play 7-6-8-7 against those two teams. You could, and, and it would be <laughs> incredible for the fans, but to win it, and to frustrate the other team, you need to employ this chokehold that you put on them last year. And they know that they can do it, and they know that they have success with it. Uh, Tampa is the one for me, when I watch them from time to time, Kevin, I, I just see them as being the biggest threat. I love Toronto's talent. Uh, their offensive gifts off the charts. They are, they are on the rise. They are going to be a threat for a long, long time. They have Nylander now into the fold. So they are... Almost, I, I would say, probably even more gifted offensively than Tampa. And Tampa so young, Joe. And so oh young. God. Kevin, they're going to be good for a long, long time. And they've got an excellent head coach. Uh, things are in place there to be a threat. And, uh, you know, the hockey world would tell you hockey's better when, when Toronto's involved. It's been a long time. Right. I want to say since 67, since the Maple Leafs won a cup. They are exceptional. But to me, Tampa's the better of those two teams. It would be a phenomenal matchup with Washington, whomever's going to come out of the Metro. The Metro's down a bit this year. The Atlantic seems to be up, and those top two teams in the Atlantic are really floating everyone's boat. Tampa is the real deal. But you still believe that Columbus and Pittsburgh are both capable, though, in the Metropolitan, don't you? Both capable of beating Washington. 
Yeah, yeah. That, that could really upset the apple cart. Yeah, I, I would love to see the Caps in a conference final against uh, one of those two Titan teams from the Atlanta. Right. I'd love that. I think the hockey fan would too, but there's no given on that. Absolutely not. But I love the way Washington's playing now. I've seen glimpses, instances of the championship team come out in them. Right now they're cruising along really well. I mean, they're solid. They've won 10 of their last 12. They've taken a nice firm grip on that top spot. I, I want to see them continue in that regard, but there's no guarantee. But from a hockey standpoint, from um, the excitement standpoint for the fans, if you get Washington, Toronto, Washington, Tampa in that conference final, look out. I always love doing this with you and always appreciate you giving me time, uh, especially on this podcast. Um, Thanks, Joe, so much. I'll talk to you soon. No trouble at all, Kevin. I hope so. All right. Thanks to Joe Beninati uh, for joining us. Uh, Farish Chrysler Dodge Jeep in Fairfax should be on your list if you're considering something new. Uh, you can go to FarishCars.com right now to see live inventory and their best deals. But they make it easy for you. Uh, I've told you many times, Ralph Perkins is a good friend of mine. He runs the dealership. Uh, Kevin Farish, great guy. I've known them for a decade plus. They're smart. They know what their customers want. They make it easy for you. They've got a sales team. That they're not pushy. They're not overbearing. Um, if you go into to Farish and you ask for Ralph and you tell them that you heard about the dealership on my podcast, um, Ralph will put you in touch with one of their most experienced salespeople. And I talked to Ralph over the weekend and he said, right now we've got so much inventory on our lot and we need to move it in time for the new vehicles that come in after the first of the year, which means a great deal opportunity for anybody that decides to try to buy something new from Farish. Their highest rebates of the year, all year long. Great deals on the Jeep Cherokee, the Jeep Grand Cherokee, and the Jeep Wrangler. Also, the Ram Pickup. He told me that great deals right now exist on the Ram Pickup, and they've got plenty of them on the lot. You'll probably be able to find the exact make, model, and color and be able to drive it home. If you like this show and you've been thinking about buying something new, I give you my word that you'll be taken care of if you head out to Farish and ask for Ralph Perkins. They are located right there in Fairfax Circle. Ask for Ralph when you get there. Tell him I sent you. You can also find out everything Farish has right now, including live inventory uh, and live pricing at FarishCars.com. Let's get to some NFL buy and sell. Are you buying or are you selling? NFL NFL buy or sell. All right, a couple things uh, before I get to the buy and sell, actually, but it's all NFL uh, related. Uh, I got a tweet um, from somebody yesterday, and I'm just, it, it's from Brad. Brad on Twitter. Uh, the overtime solution is simple, and I've been screaming for it for a decade. Each team guaranteed a possession, one 15 minute quarter. Whoever has more points after the first possession or the end of 15 minutes wins. Why does it have to be more confusing? That's fine. I think what the NFL doesn't want is they don't want 15-minute overtimes. And I'm not talking about a 15-minute max. I'm talking about a guaranteed 15 minutes played because that gets into, you know, a true fifth quarter played and in their mind's eye, more safety issues, more injury possibilities. What I suggested yesterday, and I've suggested this since they went to the 10-minute from the 15-minute, is to move it back to 15 minutes. Keep the current overtime rule. 
um, which allows for the game to end if the team that wins the toss and in their first possession drives it down the field and scores a touchdown. But if they get stopped, uh, even uh, held to a field goal, the other team gets a possession. I just think it's unfair that with a 10-minute max, a team like Dallas, and we saw this the other day, can drive it to the two-minute warning, all right, an eight-minute drive in overtime. Uh, They were within another first down. If that last touchdown wasn't a touchdown, if Amari Cooper got tackled at the two-yard line, they would have potentially been able to move the clock inside a minute before either winning the game with a touchdown or kicking a field goal, which would have left Philadelphia with not enough time. I just think 15-minute max makes it more equitable. And to me, the answer isn't, well, just stop them. Don't let them have an eight-minute drive. Uh, No, the answer is if you do stop them and you hold them to a field goal, you should have a fair opportunity to go down the field and win the game. And Philadelphia would have been in the mode had they held Dallas to a field goal of having about 50 seconds to get in field goal range to tie the game. I also, uh, when this when this rule came out, said that there are going to be more ties because of it. Um, and there haven't been like a massive increase in ties, but you've got, what do you have this year? You've got two ties, Minnesota Green Bay tied, Cleveland-Pittsburgh, right? They tied early in the year. Yeah, and a bunch of other near misses. Near misses, real g- close calls, including the Baltimore-Kansas City game the other day was a close call. You don't want ties in the NFL. I think the NFL is going to reconsider this in the offseason. I, I would be surprised if they don't uh, reconsider it. Um, also, before we get to NFL buy and sell, uh, I-, I also just wanted to real quickly, this playoff race in the NFC is nuts because Minnesota's loss still has them as the sixth seed. They're still the sixth seed in the NFC at 6-6-1. Six, six, and one. They also really, compared to the 6-7 and seven teams, other than the Redskins, have the easiest path to 8-7-1, and one, you know, uh, in their case, or two more wins, which would probably do it because they have the Dolphins at home. They're a 7.5-point favorite. Now, the Dolphins just beat the Patriots, so they could lose that game. And Minnesota could be in the midst of a free fall with all of the uh, – oh, by the way, after the show ended yesterday, Filippo got fired. Forgot to mention that. Uh, that was not on the podcast. It happened after we finished recording yesterday. We had alluded to, Tommy and I did, the tension that was brought up multiple times during the Monday night broadcast uh, between Mike Zimmer and Filippo, the offensive coordinator. Clearly, that has been a problem in Minnesota all year. Look, I, I, I had many of you say to me, Zimmer is coaching in a, at a different time and is really going to hurt Minnesota's opportunity here with a talented team and a quarterback that can throw the football because he just wants to run the football and, and, and do it old style. I don't buy that at all. I think there's still room for teams. I still think in this day and age of the NFL that you can run the football, dominate time of possession, be physical, stop people, and win a title by winning games 21-17. to 17. Or twenty-one to nine, you know, and and that's what Zimmer wants. Zimmer is an old-fashioned, tough, hard-nosed, doesn't want to take a lot of chances offensively, believes in his defense kind of a coach. 
I still think there's room for it. I disagree with all of you that say that he's stuck in some sort of, you know, ancient time that doesn't work in the NFL anymore. Jacksonville was very close to getting to a Super Bowl last year playing that way, and they didn't have any hope offensively. Minnesota still has hope offensively. But the NFC playoff picture is, like, look at the 6-7 and seven teams. The Redskins are reeling. I mean, are they going to win two games to go 8-8 eight and eight and, and have an outside shot? I don't think so. Philadelphia is 6-7, and seven, but Philadelphia has the Rams this week on the road and the Texans at home. You know, they'll probably be, they could actually be favored over the Texans at home. What does that feel like to you? That feels like a Philly minus one. If they play well against the Rams. Yeah, yeah, it really depends on this game. And then they finish with the Redskins. So theoretically, they could get to eight, I guess they could, uh, but they're not going to get to nine. Um, uh, Carolina's not getting to nine. They have the Saints twice. Uh, And that leaves Minnesota to falter significantly and allow, let's say, Green Bay in the back door at 8-7-1. But Minnesota would have to lose... Uh, they'd, well, they'd have to lose two. They'd have to lose two. Green Bay's got Chicago on the road at Jets, Lions at home. You know, maybe Green Bay's the team that sneaks in at 8-7-1. and one, And Minnesota caves the rest of the way. And so does Philadelphia, Washington, and Carolina. I mean, look, 8-8's eight eight's a possibility in the NFC. In Green Bay's case, 8-7-1 and one is a possibility. Believe it or not, Minnesota at 7-8-1? and one? is a possibility. I mean, Philadelphia, if they don't win out, eight if, if they can win two of the final three, has a pretty good chance at eight and eight. They do. I, I think Minnesota will win two of the final three, but then again, the turmoil there is impossible to uh, really speak to from here. All right, uh, what am I buying? What am I selling this week? I'm going to buy some Pittsburgh Steelers stock. All right, it's low right now. Um, they have lost three in a row and really could have very easily been on a four-game losing skid. They are staring no playoffs right in the face right now. Pittsburgh is in deep trouble, uh, really because of the, the the next two opponents, right? They've got New England at home, and then they're at New Orleans. And New Orleans and the Rams are playing for the number one seed here down the stretch. So they're not taking it easy at all in weeks 16 or 17. Uh, I just think that the Steelers are too good not to win two of these final three. They finish with the Bengals. I think they're going to beat either the Patriots this weekend or at New Orleans. New Orleans all of a sudden has become a little bit more, at least perception-wise, vulnerable. You know, they lose to Dallas scoring 10 points. They've only got three points against the Buccaneers through nearly three-quarters of that game. Um, so I, th- that may have been the biggest stunner of Sunday with all of the wild you know, stuff that was going on, that New Orleans was sitting there down 14-3 to late in the third quarter against the Bucks. It was weird. Um, but I'm buying Pittsburgh Steve stock. I think they win two of these final three, finish 9-6-1, win the NFC North, don't miss the playoffs, and then, by the way, will be really hell to deal with in the postseason you know as a as an AFC North champion they would host the first game uh and then they would go to 
um, very likely the number one seed, and that could be Kansas City. And I can tell you this, the Steelers can go to Arrowhead and win. They can definitely go to Arrowhead and win. It's Foxborough where they never really seem to play well. I kind of like them Sunday against the Patriots. Uh, so I'm buying the Steelers. Um, there's so many teams that you can potentially sell here that are obvious, like the Redskins, like the Eagles. I- I'm going to sell something that's going to shock all of you, but I'm going to sell the Minnesota Vikings. There's something not right there. Uh, I don't put it on Kirk. You know I don't. I put some of it on Kirk, uh, but they've got a terrible offensive line, which they've had all year long. Um, they have now major you know, turmoil um, turning to Kevin Stefanski as their offensive coordinator. Uh, Mike Zimmer wants to be balanced. The problem is, is that they are 27th in the league in average yards per carry, 30th overall as a rush offense. Their offensive line just hasn't allowed them to run the football uh, this year. Um, Minnesota really, they don't have to win out to make the postseason. They have to win two of their final three, but none of these three are going to be easy, including the game Sunday at home against the Dolphins. At Detroit won't be easy, and the Bears at home to finish up the year won't be easy, although it's possible, possible that the Bears will be playing for nothing uh, at that point in the season finale. But there's something wrong with Minnesota, and I know all of you will just say, yeah, that's something wrong is Kirk Cousins. That's not the only thing that's wrong with Minnesota right now. Um, There is a disconnect offensively because earlier in the year when DiFilippo got his way and they were throwing the football, um, they weren't the weakness of the team. Uh, They were the strength of the team uh, offensively. Um, Now the defense has gotten it together, and they've got a championship defense again now that Everson Griffin's returned. Uh, But I'm selling Minnesota stock right now. I mean, I'm not selling it, you know. At, at, at its height, um, clearly. But I'll buy Pittsburgh. I'll sell Minnesota. Uh, also, Denver really took a, a, a crippling loss on Sunday in San Francisco. They looked like they had a real inside track uh, to the postseason. And if you want to keep your eye on, on a team, uh, you know, I bought Pittsburgh. But if Pittsburgh were to falter, and given Baltimore's schedule of, of having to play the Chargers uh, on the road... Uh, That Ravens-Browns game, believe it or not, could have stakes for both teams. Cleveland plays at Denver this week on Saturday night. Then they have Cincinnati at home to get themselves to 7-7-1. If they're at 7-7-1, they could potentially, it's absolutely in play, that they could be playing for a division title in the final week of the season at Baltimore. How about that? Uh, they are far from dead in the AFC. All right, thanks to Joe Beninati for joining us on the show today. Thanks to Scott Allen for joining us on the show today. Thanks to Aaron for producing the show. Tommy will be back uh, tomorrow uh, with me, and then I think Cooley will be on with us on Friday. Have a great day.